You know, I think that uh, as we pray for our Methodist friends down the street, we can also learn from their courage. Uh, as they stand their ground against the cultural decay that has captured their denomination. And the vote they are holding tomorrow, I think, is a good example of what it can look like sometimes to contend for the faith delivered once for all to the saints. And that's what I've been focusing on as we've looked at the book of Jude. Jude has taken us so far on sort of a a dark tour of the false teachers who promise much but can never deliver. Pseudo-Christians who can talk a good talk but they fail to walk the walk. Their heresies might make people feel warm and fuzzy, but they lead them down a hopeless path of despair that eventually ends in ultimate destruction. And we can read this and ask ourselves, what do we do today about those who are spiritually sick or at least theologically wrong-headed that influence and still seek to lead astray God's people. How do we, not a whole lot has changed in the 2,000 years since Jude wrote this. Now Jude, in today's passage, if you'll go ahead and make sure you turn to Jude, he concludes his criticism of the ungodly and he begins to move to some commands for the beloved, or your translation may say, dear friends. Those of us who are called and loved by God and kept For Christ Jesus. And so in today's passage, he's going to transition us and he's going to give us a battle plan for the faith. How do we contend for the faith? What's the battle plan for that? And it includes three essential steps remember, remain, and rescue. So let's look first at the first thing he tells us, and that is to remember God's word. Look with me, if you will, at verses 16 through 19. These people, the people he's talking about are the ungodly that we ended last week. Remember the the prophecy of Enoch about these ungodly people doing ungodly things in ungodly ways. He says, these people are discontented grumblers, living according to their desires. Their mouths utter arrogant words, flattering people for their own advantage. But you, dear friends, remember what was predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They told you in the end time there will be scoffers living according to their ungodly desires. These people create divisions and are worldly, not having the Spirit. Now, if you remember, back in verse 5, Jude says that he is writing this letter to remind them of things they already know, to remind them of the faith that they've already received once for all. And so now Jude is specifically calling us to remember God's words of warning spoken in the past about where we are in the present with an eye to the future. Now, it can be a little confusing when he says that the the apostles have said, in the end time there will be scoffers, right? So uh, we have to understand that the earliest Christians and the New Testament writers saw themselves as living in the end times. Now, you can say... All right, David, it's 2,000 years later. (laughs) We're still here. Jesus hasn't come back yet. What what am I missing? How are they in the end times? Are we in the end times? Are we not in the end times? Well, we have to understand. We need a, a broader perspective of what they meant when they said the end times. Think of it as the in between times. We live in the time between the ascension and the second coming of Jesus. 
The end time is that period that the apostles were beginning and we are in that time. Not, we don't know where exactly in that end time we are, but it's that period of the church continuing the mission of Jesus until He returns. One thing we do know for certain is that every day brings us closer to the end of time, right? Every day we are a day closer to the return of Christ. And so what are the kinds of things we need to do as that day draws nearer? And Jude says, well, one thing you do is remember. Remember God's Word, which means more than just recollect the facts about it, we need to impress it on our hearts so that it transforms our lives. It's urgent we remember God's Word because as Warren Wiersbe writes, once we begin to question God's Word, we are vulnerable to Satan's other attacks for only the truth of the Word can protect us from the lies of the devil. Now, Paul was one of those apostles that Jude alluded to. Uh, Paul warned in Acts 20, verses 29 and 31, he said, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up even from among your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for three years I have never stopped warning each one of you with tears. And so Jude continues this, this warning, this reminding about what God said about these ungodly scoffers. And that word scoffer is referring to someone who despises God and His law. Someone who doesn't believe that God is going to judge them for their sinful lifestyles. Peter also talks about this in 2 Peter 3, 3 through 4. He says, above all, above all, and that's pretty strong, above all, beware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing and following their own evil desires, saying, where is His coming that He promised? Ever since our ancestors fell asleep, all things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation. So they don't believe that Jesus is going to come back. They mock the very idea. They don't believe that God will judge them, which is why they can mock what is holy and joke about what is wholesome. And so here in these few verses, as he's calling us to remember God's Word, Jude gives us a summary of this lengthy description he's given us about these ungodly scoffers and how we should beware of them. So just a few things, almost by way of review. He says, first, beware the discontented grumblers. Now, as Ben pointed out, the children of Israel are a prime example of discontented grumblers. It didn't matter how much God provided for them or protected them. If their tummies rumbled, they grumbled. If they got thirsty, they complained. If they stubbed a toe, let's go back to Egypt. I love the way the King James Version talks about them. It calls them belly acres. Oh, that's just such a great phrase. They were belly acres. And Jude warns us about those who continue to bellyache against God, to grumble and complain about His commandments, who love to find fault with other people and are unjustly critical of the church and its leaders. They have a critical spirit that's quick to point out the problems and highlight the faults of others while ignoring the plank in their own eye. And Satan loves to use people like this because the seeds of discontent invariably lead to the fruit of apostasy that leads people away from the church, from the Word of God, and from the fellowship of God. It often begins with those seeds of discontent. Beware 
the discontent grumbler. Secondly, he says, beware those driven by their desires. So having rejected and scoffed at and complained about God's truth, they now feel free to pursue their own pleasure rather than heed Peter's admonition to abstain from the sinful desires that wage war against the soul. They do no such abstaining. They go full in. And we've talked at length about the sinful desires that these false teachers were living and encouraging other people to live by. But in addition to those desires that they were driven by, Jude tells us, beware their divisive words. Beware their divisive words. Now, it's not hard for us to imagine how such people were causing division. And they were. Much as we see division in churches and denominations today. And we're going to see this reflected more as we look at verses 22 and 23. But, but Judah's already described how these people had wormed their way into their love feasts, into their fellowship dinners with the Lord's Supper. And much as Paul said about the Corinthian church, these people were causing divisions even during the Lord's Supper, during something that is about communion, about unity. They were putting others down to make themselves feel and look superior. They were acting like Balaam did against Israel and like Korah did against Moses and Aaron. Again, Satan loves to sow seeds of division. Division, discontent. These are his go-tos because he wants to divide. He wants to tear down. He wants to rip apart. And these false teachers were acting like Satan's minions, promoting and fostering strife instead of unity. Beware them. And finally, he says, beware those who are devoid of the Spirit. You know, so far as I thought about this and, and, and kind of where this sort of climax reaches right here, Jude kind of reminds me of a Scooby-Doo episode. You know, at the end of a Scooby-Doo episode, Thelma and maybe some of the others, they kind of take you back through and they talk about all these things that were happened and they kind of start to piece the puzzles together of what the bad guy did and how and why he did it and all of this. But then you reach that point where Fred reaches over and what's he do? He pulls off the mask and reveals the true identity. And that's what Judah's done. He's pulled off the mask to reveal these people as who they really are. They are worldly and without the Spirit of God. That's why they've done the things that they've done. That's why these people have caused such problems. They're not Christians to begin with because if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't belong to God. Paul says as much in Romans 8 9, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. And Judas said these people were without the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 2, 14, Paul says the person without the Spirit doesn't receive what comes from God's Spirit because it's foolishness to him. He's not able to understand it since it is evaluated spiritually. So no wonder these are false teachers. They don't receive the things of the Spirit. They don't understand the things of the Spirit because they don't belong to Christ. They are self-professed teachers who aren't even followers of Jesus. They claim to be Christians, but their works reveal they don't know Him. Or as Titus 1.16 says, they claim to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Now, it is not enough for us just to recognize these false teachers for who they are and to beware of them. That's, that's not enough. 
And notice that Jude, in this battle plan for contending for the faith, he never once calls for us to hit the streets with posters and signs and protesting these people. He never tells us to ride them out of town on a rail. I'm not saying there may not be a place for some of that sometimes. That's not what Jude is telling us to do. Instead, Jude calls us to take a positive, proactive approach to keep ourselves grounded in God's love. So rather than just focus on the deficiency of others, he calls us to grow ourselves spiritually. We we can't limit our fight to simply pointing out the faults of others and saying, well, that's not true and that's wrong and we shouldn't listen to him. Again, I'm not saying that there's not a place for that. Judas spent most of his letter doing that, right? Here are the things these people are saying that's not true. Here's how they are really living their lives. Don't listen to them. But that's not really how we contend for the faith. We contend for the faith by focusing primarily on our relationship with Jesus. So in addition to remembering God's Word and the warnings about these false teachers, secondly, he tells us remain in God's love. Look at verses 20 and 21. He he again says, But you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Now, there are four verbs in these two verses. Only one of them is an imperative, a commandment. It's the word keep. The others... Building up yourself, praying, waiting are participles. So those of you maybe didn't think we're going to have an English lesson today, right? Remember your grammar. So there's one imperative telling us what to do, three participles telling us how to do it, right? They modify, they work to help us understand better that imperative. What Jude is saying is no matter what else we might do to contend for the faith, it should revolve around this core commandment, Keep yourself in the love of God. That's critical. Now, if you remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago, keep is one of Jude's favorite words. Remember, he accused the falling angels of failing to keep their own positions, and as a result, Jesus has kept them in chains awaiting judgment. And that's in stark contrast to the opening of the letter where Jude addresses us as the called, loved by God, and kept for Jesus Christ. Now, it's important to know that in that first verse, kept is in the indicative mood, which means it indicates something about us. It states something factual about us. We are the called, loved, and kept. That's who we are as followers in Jesus. But now, in verses 20 and 21, Jude uses the imperative mood, commanding us to keep ourselves in the love of God. Now, I don't know which is it. Does God keep us in Christ or do we keep ourselves in His love? It's both. This this beautifully shows us how salvation requires both divine action but also human responsibility. God initiates, we must respond. God extends His grace, we must receive it by faith. Jesus talks about this, about remaining, keeping ourselves, abiding in His love. He says in John 15, 9-10, He's talking in the context of us being the branches and He is the vine. And if we want to bear fruit, we have to remain. The branch has to remain in the vine. He says, As the Father has loved Me, I have also loved you. Remain. Keep yourselves 
in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I've kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. And then John in 1 John 4.16 further says, God is love and the one who remains, who keeps himself in love, keeps himself in God and God remains in Him. Now we're going to see next week as we look at verse 24 that ultimately at the end it is God who keeps us and our eternal salvation secure. So the gospel begins and ends with God's work but we have a part in it as well. There's responsibility that's placed on us, the human element. And this is the biblical tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Sort of like a marriage. When two people get married, that's not the end of the relationship. You hear me, men? It's not the end of the relationship. It's just the beginning. And two people come together in marriage. They vow and commit themselves to one another. There's security in that. It's supposed to be till death do us part. But at the same time, you've got to put work into it, don't you? And you want to. Why do you get married? So that you can love each other more, so that you can grow old together, and you can be as one flesh. And in a similar way, when we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, that's not the end. I've got my ticket. I'm going to heaven. Now I can sit back. It's the beginning of us growing deeper and deeper in love with God. We should want to remain in His love. We should want to grow in our love relationship with Him. And so Jude now gives us those three participles, three things to help us grow in our love relationship with God. And the first one is, he says, building yourself up in the true faith. Now, we talked about in the first message in this series what Jude means by the faith. The faith. We're to contend for the faith handed down once for all to the saints. Here he talks about the, the holy faith or the true faith. It's the foundation upon which we build our lives. The faith he's talking about is the entirety of God's inspired authoritative word. It's the entirety of Christian orthodox doctrine. It's the gospel. It's that upon which we build our lives. And it's opposed to the faith of the false teachers that isn't true, that isn't holy. Now, Jude here doesn't assume that spiritual growth happens by accident, that it happens in just some kind of mystical way we can't understand. We can't grow in our love for God by bypassing our mind and just going for our feelings. Now, sometimes we want to do that. Right? We want to listen to good Christian music. We want to have a good worship experience. And we want to be moved. We want to go off to camp or a revival service or a retreat or a conference and have this emotional moment. And, and, and there's some value in that. There's a place for that. But never will we grow in our relationship with God if we bypass our mind. Yes, there is a mysterious side to our spiritual growth, but God has revealed Himself in Jesus Christ and He has given us His Word so that we can know Him more. So we can grow in our understanding. Spiritual growth is the result of our growing in our knowledge and understanding of God's Word. Kent Hughes has said, you cannot be profoundly influenced by that which you do not know. And sadly... More and more Christians seem to know less and less about God's Word. And if you look at the polls and stuff like that and the studies that Pew does or Barna does, it's very concerning that more and more Americans today know less and less about God's Word. In fact, the majority of people who attend church today, according to these studies, can't even put the books of the Bible in order. 
or even tell you, given a book of the Bible, is it in the Old Testament or the New Testament? Much less to be able to give you a summary snapshot of the redemptive story of God's Word from Genesis to Revelation. Now, if you're sitting there kind of squirming, thinking, well, David, I'm not very good at any of that either. I've got good news for you. Beginning Wednesday night, August 9th, our Wednesday night study in the Fellowship Hall, I'm, I'm putting together a study I'm calling Route 66, A Road Trip Through the Bible. And we're going to take however long it takes. We're going to do one book of the Bible every Wednesday night, and we're going to do the overview, the snapshot, just driving past, quick view of that book of the Bible. Who wrote it? When do they write it? What's it about? What are the major themes? What does it tell us about God? How does it point us to Jesus for every book of the Bible? So I encourage you, you can be there Wednesday nights. All right, commercial is done. Now, in our New Testament reading that we heard earlier, Paul tells us that we are to build our lives on the sure foundation of God's Word. In Ephesians 2.20, Paul says our faith must be built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ Himself as our cornerstone. That's the Word of God. That's the Old Testament. That's the epistles. That's the Gospels. We are to build our lives on the foundation of what God has revealed to us through the prophets, apostles, and especially through Jesus Christ Himself. In 1 Peter 2.5, it says that we are like spiritual stones, that we are being built up as a spiritual house and a holy priesthood. Well, the Word of God is the foundation for that spiritual growth. Listen, I've never met a strong Christian, a fruitful Christian, who neglects the Word of God. Never. We must spend time daily in God's Word, seeking the mind of Christ. That means... That includes spending some time every day reading the Bible sort of in a devotional way, maybe first thing in the morning or before you go to bed. But it also includes regular in-depth study of God's Word. Maybe for a Bible study group you're a part of, studying your Sunday school lesson each week, digging in a little bit deeper. We need to increase our time in the Word of God. Are you doing that? Are you building up your most holy faith brick by brick with God's Word? Listen, here's a challenge. If you just take five more minutes a day than you're already spending in God's Word, for some of you, that means five minutes a day. For some of you, it might mean 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes. But if you just added five extra minutes a day in the Word of God, every week you're adding 35 minutes of Bible intake. And imagine if all of us were doing that. Imagine if all of us were spending hours over the course of a week or a month in the Word of God, the difference that could make. But we need not only to listen and talk to God through listen to God and have Him talk to us through His Word, we need to talk to God as well, right? Communication goes both ways. And so he goes on to tell us not only should we be building up ourselves in the most holy faith, but we should be praying in the Holy Spirit. Hudson Taylor was the founder of China Inland Mission. He was one of the greatest missionaries of the 19th century. And he found... Kind of like being a pastor, one of the hardest parts of being a missionary was keeping regular prayerful time in God's Word that's not connected to sermon preparation. (laughs) Just me feeding my soul, spending time with God, he found that to be a struggle. In fact, he once remarked, Satan will always find you something to do when you ought to be occupied about prayer and the Word, even if it's only arranging a window blind. Isn't that true? Haven't you experienced that? I mean, Taylor found that contending for the faith is not easy and the enemy will do everything he can to distract us from time with God. 
That's why we can't do any of this on our own. We need the Spirit working in and through us. We can't keep ourselves in the love of God in our own strength, in our own wisdom. We need to pray in the Spirit. Prayer and the Word is how we nurture that relationship with God. Paul says in Ephesians 6.18 that we are to pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. So even in our praying, we need the Spirit's power. We need the Spirit's leading. There's a famous quote that says, prayer is not getting man's will done in heaven, it's, God's, it's getting God's will done on earth. And that's what 1 John 5 has in mind, that idea when he writes, this is the confidence we have before Him. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we've asked of Him. So when we are praying in the Spirit, we are being led by the Spirit to know the mind of God so that our prayers will align with what God already wants to do in and through us. Paul said it this way in Romans 8, 26 and 27. He said, in the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness because we do not know what to pray for as we should. You ever been there? You don't know exactly what to pray for a certain person or situation or for yourself? He says, in those instances, the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So when we submit to God's Spirit... The Spirit assists us in our prayers and leads us to pray for those things that God already wants to give us and do in our lives. And we will grow in our love for God. We will deepen our understanding of His will and His ways. And we will experience that all-surpassing peace of God that will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Building ourselves up in the most holy faith. Praying in the Spirit and finally waiting expectantly for eternal life. Jude understands the power of hope for the future to motivate action for today. So as we read God's Word, as we pray, we do it all in this spirit of expectancy, waiting eagerly. Why? Because the future is bright. We win in the end. We're on the winning side. Eternal life awaits all who are called by God and loved by Him and kept for Christ Jesus. One author expressed it like this, waiting in hope infuses all life with expectancy and the desire to do all that Jesus expects of us so we will have no shame when He returns. Waiting is an attitude that's motivated by the promise of heaven. That's what Jude is saying. Now, the false teachers, he's told us, that all they have to look forward to is judgment. But the beloved, we can look forward to Christ's mercy. You see, not only do you receive mercy the moment you put your trust in Jesus for salvation, but as we sang earlier, as God's Word says, His mercy is new every morning. So every day we experience His mercies. And there's coming a day when we'll experience the ultimate mercy when He saves us from the very presence of sin and brings us into His eternal presence. And that's something we look forward to. We wait with expectation. Now I want you to notice in these verses that we already have everything we need to remain in God's love. We have everything we need to build ourselves up in the most holy faith, to pray in the Spirit, to wait expectantly for the mercy of Christ. We have all that we need. How do I say that? Well, hidden in these verses are two beautiful triads. The first is the fullness of God, the Trinity. Notice that Jude here talks about praying in the Spirit, remaining in God's love, and waiting for the mercy of Jesus. 
The Trinity is right there. And, and the, the trifold virtues of faith, hope, and love. He says we're to build ourselves up in the faith, we're to remain in God's love, and we're to wait, hopefully, for Christ's return. We have all that we need to remain in the love of God. But Jude changes focus one more time. He, he's taken us from remembering what God has warned us about these false teachers to focusing on our own spiritual growth and remaining in God's love. But Jude doesn't want us to stop right there. there there's, a, there's a temptation that we have, a tendency we have, to want to kind of isolate ourselves in our own little Christian bubble. Right? I'm going to look after my family. I'm going to look after my church. And that's it. But we are never called to do that. We are sent we are called to go into the darkness bearing the light of Christ. And so as we remain and grow in God's love, the third thing that Jude tells us to do is to rescue those in danger that are out there. Look at verses 22 and 23. Have mercy on those... I'm sorry, uh, keep yourselves in the love of God. Let's kind of pick up there. Waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Have mercy on others, but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Judah's answering the question, what should our attitude be toward those who are being influenced by Satan's lies and false prophets? And Jude answers, our attitude should be one of mercy, not malice. It should be one of rescue, not ridicule and rejection. He tells us first, be merciful to those who waver. Just as we have received mercy and we await the mercy of Christ, we're to extend that mercy to those who waver. Listen, churches are filled with people who doubt. And the people out there in the world look at us and think that we're just so confident. We've got it all together. We've got it all figured out. At least we think we do. And they, you know, they think we're all holier than thou and high and mighty. They don't understand. A church is a hospital for sinners, right? We're not perfect. We're forgiven. And we don't have, think we have all the answers. We struggle. We have doubts. Young Christians especially may have doubts about the Bible, about theology, about the moral, ethical implications of the gospel. After all, we are making disciples in a post-Christian culture among people who haven't grown up with the basic Bible literacy that a lot of us have that are older. I count myself as one of those. Now, we grew up in a culture where there were just some basic Christian things that everybody knew. That's no longer the case. There are professors in colleges, celebrities and media personalities on TV, influencers on social media who are challenging the faith every day. And more so than today than ever, we are exposed to far more messages from the world than most of us are to the Word of God. We're receiving and hearing these things all the time, especially our young people. New believers may wonder, Pastor, how can I be sure the Bible is true? And are you really sure that I can't love Jesus and still do whatever I want to do? Because there are people out there saying I can. Who do I believe? And listen, those of us who have even been Christians for a long time, most of our life, even we can be swayed by a charismatic speaker with clever arguments. Such people who are confused, questioning, struggling with doubts, they need our merciful and patient care. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. He said, The Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle with everyone, able to teach and patient, instructing even his opponents with gentleness. Why? Because he says, Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. See, that's the goal. 
Our goal should always be to see them repent from falsehoods and gain the knowledge of God's truth. And how do we do that? We do that by being compassionate in our convictions and speaking the truth in love. Because we're not seeking to win an argument. We're seeking to win people. Amen? James 5, 19-20. We looked at James uh, not too long ago. He says, My brothers and sisters, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. We are to go out to rescue those that we know are being unduly influenced by the world. They're struggling. They're straying. They're doubting. They're wavering. They need our merciful care. We need to speak God's truth to them in love. Be convictional, but with compassion. But secondly, he tells us we are to be missional with those who are lost. Be missional with those who are lost. He says in verse 23, save others by snatching them from the fire. Now, we heard in our Old Testament reading this vision of Zechariah where Joshua the high priest was standing before God's judgment seat and Satan was there as the prosecuting attorney. And he was bringing these charges against Joshua and the Lord rebukes Satan and he says that he was snatching Joshua like a smoldering stick from the fire. God was saying that he had chosen in mercy to save Joshua from condemnation. So here, and scholars debate exactly who these others that were to save like a stick from the, a stick from the fire, uh, who does he talk, who's he talking about here? Is he talking about lost people? People who have never genuinely had a conversion experience? Or is he talking about people who are Christians, but they've gone so far down the rabbit hole of false teachings, they're like lost people? Maybe it's both. Now, both Jesus and Paul talk about treating a believer, someone in the church, as if they're an unbeliever because they refuse correction. They won't repent of a sin that they're living in and we're to treat them like unbelievers. Now, people will hear that and say, well, that's just so cruel and unloving. Just to excommunicate someone and just treat them like a pariah? But is that the way we're supposed to treat unbelievers? Jesus and Paul said we're to treat these people as unbelievers. How do we treat unbelievers? Well, Paul says in Romans 2.4 that God's kindness is intended to lead people to repentance. So Paul says you treat unbelievers with kindness. How did Jesus treat unbelievers? He was gentle with them. He loved them. He met their needs. He called them to repentance. That's how we're to treat unbelievers. That's how to treat people in the church who've gone so far off that they are beyond left field. They're out of the ballpark. We're to treat them with that same kind of compassion and kindness, but at the same time a call to repentance. So whether we find them in the churches or in the streets, Christ has commissioned us to go to all peoples and make disciples. That includes presenting the hope of the gospel, calling people to faith in Christ, and teaching them to obey all that He has commanded us. The end of the movie Schindler's List. World War II is over. Oscar Schindler is preparing to leave his factory and he stops as he's getting into his car and talks to one of his Jewish foremen. And the foreman wants to thank Schindler for all he did to save so many Jewish people from the Holocaust. And the foreman said, one who saves one life saves the world in time. Schindler's response, he said, I could have got more. I could have got more. I made more money, threw away so much money, didn't do enough. Why did I buy this car? Ten more people. And this gold pen, two more people. At least one more person. One more person who is dead. Beloved, 
What are we investing in? What are you doing with your time, with your resources, with all that God has given you in your life? Jesus has called us to contend, not just for ourselves and our families and our churches, but for a lost world that's dead in sin. We're to contend for them as well. So these first two statements are our goals. They are what we are to do. We are to be merciful to those who waver and missional to those who are lost. But then thirdly, he gives us the attitude that we should have as we do both. He says, be mindful of sin's danger. Now, there have been so many tragic stories this summer of, of people, even, even a father trying to rescue his daughter who have gone out into the water because someone's caught in a riptide or maybe they've been bitten by a shark and then that, that would-be rescuer gets lost at sea or drowns. That's happened several times this summer. And, and it's tragic, especially when those rushing to help, they mean well, but they're ill-equipped and they're not trained to do that. Well, listen, when an unstable believer has been captured by false teachings, we have to be careful as we go to rescue them. Because if we're not careful, much as a drowning man will fight their rescuer and maybe even drown them with them, Satan can use that wayward believer that we're going after to drag us down and defile us. We are to be cautious. Or to use Jude's analogy in trying to save others and snatching them from the fire, we might get burned. We might be stained by their garment defiled by sin. We must balance courage and compassion with caution. Genesis 6.1, Paul warns us, he says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual are to restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. We must never be so arrogant to think that we are beyond the temptations or deceptions that have snared other people. Right? While serving the Lord and seeking to rescue one of His children, we can be defiled by the one that we're trying to help. I've seen this happen. I've seen people who their hearts are in the right place. They, they were trying to reach out to somebody and in their attempts to be gentle and to be loving and all that, they end up twisting mercy into approval for the sin. And then the next step is you begin to stray from God's Word yourself. And you become more and more like the very people you thought you were trying to rescue. You allow the defiled garments of sin to stain your own hearts and minds. This is where the balance between loving the sinner but hating the sin comes into play. Yes, we must be kind, compassionate, and gentle, but also clear in what God's Word says and calling people to repentance, to change their minds, to turn from sin and lies to the truth and love of God. Showing love for the sinner does not exclude hatred for the corruption brought about by sin. That's why, again, borrowing from that passage in Zechariah, he talks about that we are to hate even the garment defiled by the flesh. Listen. God so loved the world, right? God loves you. But because God loves us, He hates sin. God has wrath on sin because of its destructive nature on us. So yes, Jesus died because God is love, but also because God so hates our sin. And that's why Jesus suffered the wrath we deserve, died the death that we were supposed to die so that we could be turned to righteousness. Listen, this morning I hope you know God loves you. I hope that you have turned from sin to the Savior. And if you have not, know that it's not too late. 
Today is the day of salvation. Jesus longs to extend His grace and mercy to you. He wants to snatch you from the fire. He wants to take away your defiled garment and give you a robe of righteousness. He wants to make you new if you will trust in Him. And I invite you today in just a moment to do that. And beloved, are we growing in our love for God? Are we building ourselves up in His Word and in Spirit-led prayer? Are we waiting expectantly for His kingdom to come? Maybe this morning you need to come and you need to lay at the foot of the cross the things that have been distracting you. Maybe even the falsehoods of this world that have been leading you astray to waver. Maybe you need to come and say, Lord, I want to believe. Help my unbelief. Strengthen my faith. This altar is open. I would, be, I would love to pray with you if you want to come and do that this morning. Maybe God is laying someone on your heart and mind that you need to contend for. Someone that you know that is caught up in wrongdoing, they're being led astray in error, and Christ is calling you to go after them with mercy, on mission to bring them to the truth of God. Whatever He has laid on our hearts, let's be obedient as we respond today. Would you stand and pray with me? Father, we thank You for Your love for us, Your love that warns us, Your love that redeems us, Your love that is daily sanctifying us, making us more like Jesus, chipping away at those sinful parts of our lives. You love us so much that You reveal truth to us. God, help us to remain in Your love. And if there's someone here today that needs to step into that love relationship with You for the first time, I pray they would do it today. And God, help each and every one of us as we go out into this world to contend for the faith delivered once for all to the saints. Help us do it with mercy. Help us to do it on mission. Help us to do it mindful of the dangerous effects of sin and Satan's lies in the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray.